Hi, everybody. We're back at Dorothy's Place. I'm Elias Krim, and I'm here with my pal, Pete Davis. Hey, Pete. Hello, Elias. Hello, listeners. We, we are revved up for a conversation uh, with my old friend from back in my days in Valparaiso, Bob Elder, who now hangs out in Waco at Baylor University and has written a book that has taken off like a rocket and is uh, a wonderful mess of topics to talk about today. And I thought we would begin, see what you guys think about this. You know, this is a book that partly is about sectionalism. So let's just, you know, let's just get right to that. Bob, you are from Kansas. Right. You're a native Kansan? I am a native. Uh, well, now a secret is that I was actually born in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but okay. Uh, but I grew up in uh, I grew up in Kansas. That is correct. All right. Um, I I grew up in a small town in East Texas, right near, near the Louisiana border. I want to add. Right. <laughs> different part of Texas. Yeah. Different part of Texas. And Pete is a Virginian, and I want I've never asked Pete this question. Pete, what kind of Virginian exactly are you? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say uh, Kansas <laughs> and East Texas. I think suburban Washington is okay. uh, whatever the opposite end of the spectrum of uh, all right. of whatever the cliched all American uh, place to grow up is. So, right. Although, <laughs> that is where I am. I mean, Pete's imperial core. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're in Richmond now, which surely qualifies as more like the real Virginia. Um, yes, I, I I sometimes say for those who want kind of modern cultural geography, the I, I my main town is Falls Church, Virginia, and the true north south dividing line is about fifteen minutes south of Falls Church, Virginia. <laughs> where if you are north of it, it might as well be Boston, and if you are south of it, it might as well be uh, uh, Alabama. So um, it is a true. It doesn't even fade in. It is a sharp dividing line. Really. Yes. Even today. Even today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Great. Um, well, let's see. My, my uh, thought of how to begin is to ask Bob about this wonderful biography and, and the way I keep remembering that if you want to learn some history, it's such a great thing to pick up a great biography. Could we all agree on that? It's just painless, you know? And, and all these other tidbits of information, somehow they hold together. In a, in a, a wonderful biography like this one. Well, well I, I hope it's painless. I'm not sure everyone <laughs> would agree with that, Elias. But <laughs> I found it very smooth, very delightful. I had my highlighter out, you know, all the way. Um, you know, and the way I want to begin on this is by tying it to your earlier book, um, the title of which, um, something about it, Sacred Mirror. Yeah, there you go. Honor. Yeah. I, Calhoun is a man of honor. And clearly, Southern personal honor, chivalric, and all that. And, and what I want to get to, maybe we'll get to it as we talk, is whether somehow he conflated in his own mind personal with national, his national oh, yeah. honor, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm always I'm always trying to figure out exactly what the connections are between my first and second book, because it's... <laughs> not always clear to me. So maybe we can work that out here. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, the first book was about honor culture uh, and its influence on kind of evangelical Christianity. But I was really fascinated by honor culture. And I thought 
initially that would be a bigger part of my interpretation of Calhoun than it ended up being. Although if you've read the book, you, you know, it's definitely part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there are, there are moments in, uh, in Calhoun's life that you really can't understand unless you understand uh, honor culture, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, within this honor shame culture that historians would argue that is, is, is uh, part of the American South, there are certain responses to being challenged or to these moments of friction that, um, that help to explain, I think, why a person like Calhoun reacts the way he does in American politics. So, you know, the most famous thing, the thing that most people know about Calhoun is, um, it, one of the things they know is his role in the nullification crisis from, uh, you know, in 1832, 1833, where South Carolina kind of uh, uh, stands off Andrew Jackson and the federal government and um, and uh, I, I think a key part of that is understanding that, that Calhoun, but also a lot of other people in South Carolina who, when they're challenged and, and they, you know, they nullify the laws or they make the first, they make the first move. But a part, part of their kind of cultural apparatus is not to back down when you're challenged because that is, you know, submitting to shame and those sorts of things. And I, I, I think I'm not the first person to argue that this is a key part of understanding Southern politics in the antebellum era. Um, Bertram Wyatt Brown, who was probably the historian who was most famous for studying honor culture, he was the way I got interested in honor culture. And one of his arguments is that this is, you have to understand this in order to understand how the South secedes, why they secede over the election of 1860, because it's not just the actual political threat to, to slavery that Abraham Lincoln represents, it's the insult, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the actual cultural uh, uh, offense that has been given uh, by, by uh, Abraham Lincoln. But I think, I think also uh, it, that Calhoun understood in a larger perspective. So the other thing he's famous for is pioneering this argument about slavery as a positive good. And there's a wonderful book by the philosopher Kwame Anthony uh, Apaya uh, on how honor and shame and, and changing notions of honor and shame underpin uh, these cultural changes. And he, he looks at these different moments like the end of the practice of foot binding in China and the end of the transatlantic slave trade. And he argues that you know, at key moments, things become shameful in society that before had become, that before had been accepted or honorable and those sorts of things. And, and one of the reasons that I kind of argue in the book that Calhoun pioneers his argument about slavery in the 1830s, that where he leaves behind the old necessary evil argument and goes to this positive good argument is uh, that he sees that shift beginning to happen. And he, he, he kind of consciously crafts this very aggressive ideological argument that slavery is a good thing to combat this cultural shift uh, where he sees slavery becoming kind of shameful 
in the larger culture. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, I, I, there, there, I could have written a whole separate article on that sort of stuff, but yeah, I think, I think understanding his cultural context was, and, and part of that is, is the honor culture of the South is really important in understanding him. I mean, he fought a duel. <laughs> yeah. He all, well, he almost fights a duel. He almost um, fought one, Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he get he gets about as far in fighting a duel as, as most people who quote unquote <laughs> fought duels did, which was oh, is that right. Uh, you know, they got almost to the, his opponent, oh, Philip that's Gro- that's his, his opponent, Philip Grovesmer actually gets arrested on the dueling oh, field. That's so a great comic scene. Yeah. Yeah. They get pretty close. Yeah. What I love about this uh, book entering the discourse at this time is that so often the conversation around racism in America, our racist past and white supremacy, it's mystified and enlarged beyond um, into this kind of almost religious or it's always been with us or um, it will never go away. It will always be this thing. But I like sometimes shrinking it down, not to where the right wingers shrink it down to saying it doesn't exist, but shrinking it down to politics and historic politics into saying it was invented by men. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a specific ideology that was uh, created to achieve certain ends. Um, it metastasized and took over our country and scarred all of it and still scars us to this day. Mm-hmm. But there are specific agents that built this ideology. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's important is that means we can destroy it. If it, if it was, if it was created, it can be destroyed. If it's a religious cosmic thing, it is only something that can be accommodated. Um, and what I love about this entering is you are talking about one of the political entrepreneurs, one of the constructors of this ideology that so scars our nation, and thus, uh, in some way, are re-bringing this kind of legacy back into politics. Do you agree with that reading of uh, this? Or, and how did you, uh, you know, how did you process that role of writing a book about one of the architects of uh, such a horrible part of American history? Yeah. Great question. Um, yeah, I mean, part of what I wanted to do, I think, was to, you know, I titled the book with my editor's help. I always have to credit my editor who, who uh, pushed me towards the title of American Heretic. And part of that argument is that I think what we do with Calhoun frequently is when we talk about his argument of, about slavery as a positive good, which he makes, and he has this famous speech in 1837 where he argues that it's a positive good in all the, you know, economically, socially, politically, for for white people and black people, right? And um, we frequently take that and say, okay, that is um, this extreme argument that ha- that is um, uh, that that we can separate from the mainstream of American history because Calhoun is such a reactionary radical. And, um, and, and, and what I wanted to argue in the book or to show is, is just how influential that argument actually became that when he makes it in 1830, it is, uh, it, it hadn't existed in that form before, just like you're saying that, that 
he constructs it quite consciously as a political ideology to counter abolitionism, right? And so, of course, racism had existed before that. Of course, there had been arguments about slavery before that. But the standard Southern argument before this had been the kind of necessary evil argument, right? That, yes, it's bad. Yes, it's a contradiction of American ideals, but we can't get rid of it without ruining our economy. And what would we do with the freed slaves? Because obviously they can't stay here and be citizens, right? This, this would be Thomas Jefferson's answer. And Calhoun, after he constructs this in the 1830s, um, it becomes by 1860, uh, one, uh, it, it's arguable, but it becomes the default position of the of most white Southerners and white slaveholders by the, by 1860, and there are vast historical consequences to that because if you believe that slavery is a necessary evil, you might be willing to compromise about it. You might be able able to um, or willing to institute kind of gradual emancipation of the type that Abraham Lincoln wanted to, but not if you believe it's a, it's a positive good. And this of course also has implications well beyond the civil war because a fundamental tenet of the lost cause ideology that springs up after the civil war and that continues well into the 20th century and you can still find parts of it today is that you know slavery was not such a bad thing, you know, that it was beneficial even for the enslaved themselves. And so I, 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 part of what I wanted to do is to say it, it's not historically accurate to kind of separate that out of, of our history and argue that it's, that it's kind of a special extreme case because it's actually much more influential than, uh, than, than maybe we would like to think. So I think I agree with you. That's that's the short answer. <laughs> that's good. Um, you you've mentioned I think in some other interviews that part of what you were doing in the book, and and this is a, a wonderful, typical task of good history, is to bring Calhoun into conversation with all the other historiography that's gone on in the last couple of decades or so, and the the part of that I think that's most interesting to me, um, it reminds me of a comment I read about white resistance to civil rights, that sometimes people imagine that these Southerners at the time were all motivated by sort of um, fantasies, romanticism about keeping the old South, old ways of life. And the, the argument of his reading is that it was something quite a bit more practical than that and that is white economic power. You do not want people voting, creating economic independence, moving away from, you know, this, this sort of old style dependent economy um, if, if you want to stay in charge. So in a way, that's, that's very much like what I guess has happened over the last couple of decades uh, in terms of... Um, the system of slavery uh, turning out to be not an antiquated, feudal, claptrap sort of arrangement, but really something that eventually got much more organized, efficient, and rationalized uh, in an almost industrial way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, 
Uh, I think, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to just put Calhoun in this new context of all the, the scholarship on slavery and capitalism that has emerged in the last uh, 10 to 20 years since the last biography that was written of him. And there's a huge difference between, I think, what was the older version of Calhoun, where he he stood in as this this representation of an entire interpretation of the American South as kind of backwards looking of slavery as an outmoded economic system that where the, where it was a kind of he was fighting a rear guard action against modernity and capitalism, right? Which is what people have been saying about the American South for <laughs> four hundred years, um, and uh, and instead, I think <clears throat> what what I tried to do in the book is to portray him as uh, what he how he understood himself, uh, which I, I think is clear when you actually read his arguments carefully, which was. He was making this argument that slavery was a uh, an essential component of global capitalism mm -hmm. and that the abolitionists were going to destroy the goose that laid the golden egg. And and uh, so, the, you know, for him, I, I think instead what, what I try to portray in the book is. He, instead of this figure fighting a rearguard action against uh, modernity and capitalism, instead, uh, he looks like this figure who is defending one of the hubs of global capitalism, which is the raw material production and the sort of labor arrangements that that required, which, by the way, outlive slavery in the American South. I mean, people like Sven Beckert in his book, Empire of Cotton, shows how various forms of racial and unfree labor are essential to that, uh, to, to cotton as the quintessential crop of 19th century industrial capitalism and how after, after it's abolished, after slavery is abolished in the American South, they have to figure out other labor regimes in other parts of the world like India to, to, to feed that appetite. And in a way, of course, that proves Calhoun right, that, that it did take some form of unfree labor, exploited labor um, to, to run that, uh, to run that, this huge interlocking uh, system. And so um, I, I just wanted to portray him as a much more, he's thoroughly embedded in, conversant with, and, and, and trying to portray himself and his society as forward moving as part of progress as fully you know willing and able and and beneficial to to be part of this broader capitalist system um and i think that's uh you know not how he's been interpreted before a question about his legacy um, up until very recently. So I, I, I was trying to remember what, you know, I came of, uh, I w had like elementary school history in like the 90s. And I think I, I vaguely remember that in our textbooks, it was st he was still like reported as like just one of the neutral figures of the 1800s that had an opinion among the other people who had an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and so that was as late as the 90s. And then uh -huh. I was looking through old uh, in preparation for this, like 
like places where he was held up by people who had no business holding him up. And I found, and I'm sure you found this too, in 1957, JFK um, was in charge of a committee to select five senators that the Senate should start their Hall of Fame with. And they picked Calhoun as one of the five senators. And that's like John F. Kennedy, an Irish guy from Massachusetts. Um, And there's this grand mystery in American history Um, which is why did the North allow the South to sneak back into good graces and all of their heroes to sneak back into good graces? Um, And I guess, could you shed some light on that mystery through the lens of this one guy? How did we let the architect of the worst part of the South sneak back into good graces to the point that John F. Kennedy would say, let's hold him up as a hero uh, when we come up with the Senate Hall of Fame in 1957. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great story. And I mentioned that uh, story in my epilogue to make just the, the point that you're talking about, which is that by the, by the real, and uh, uh, really by the early 20th century, Calhoun has, um, has been welcomed back into the national pantheon, not as a father of the Confederacy or the intellectual father of of secession or because of his positive good arguments uh, about slavery, but because of his his constitutional theories and his his arguments, right? So uh, Yale University uh, names a residential college for him in 1933, partly, as as I kind of talk about in the book as a as a diversity initiative of sorts to try to get <laughs> white southern students to come to Yale um, because they they were worried about enrollment um, and uh, the the John F Kennedy that committee in 1957 so and th- there's all these examples of how Calhoun kind of becomes again a mainstream uh, political thinker. Um, and I think that it's part of this broader process that historians like David Blight have described of reconciliation, right? That after the Civil War, that the country is, and the, and the North in particular, ha- is forced to choose between these two imperatives, right? They, they can either pursue the project of reconstruction to its natural, to, to its end, right? And, and actually implement the promise of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, or they can reconcile with the South, uh, which is going to require not pursuing that agenda and also acknowledging key parts of the Southern interpretation of the Civil War, which by then was that it's about constitutional issues and not slavery. Well, Calhoun fits perfectly into that agenda because he was a an important constitutional thinker his theories happened to have been made in defense of slavery and a, a whole part of his legacy is these arguments about slavery as a positive good uh, but as i also lay out in the book calhoun's constitutional theories are still being studied and talked about and even implemented in very different ways um, outside the United States in the 20th century by political scientists and in actual instantiations of them in p- 
political arrangements like the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So he is an important constitutional thinker. It's not inaccurate to say that. And yet that's the in that, that, that gives people the ability to portray him as, uh, as only that and to kind of disconnect his legacy from slavery and those sorts of things. So they talk about his constitutional theories about nullification, about this idea of the concurrent majority without connecting those things to slavery. So it, it is what happens with Calhoun is in miniature what happens with the entire interpretation of the American Civil War uh, during this phenomenon of, of reconciliation. So in one sense, it, he's just an example of, of that. Um, and, and, you know, what's happening with him in terms of, uh, you know, the taking down the statues of him in places like Charleston and renaming buildings at Yale University and those sorts of things. I think in that sense, he's, he's simply part of this broader reckoning with our history that's going on uh, in our culture more broadly, where people are recovering the history of, of reconstruction, of the Civil War, we're, you know, we're, we're uh, several years into this uh, continuing realization that the Civil War was actually about slavery. <laughs> and I think so, uh, Calhoun, in that sense, is just a mirror where he's, he's different parts of him are being re-emphasized as our cultural conversation, uh, um, uh, you know, proceeds. And I think, I think now, I mean, I would argue, but perhaps this is because of where we're at in our present moment, that we're recovering a more accurate version of him than it was to simply celebrate him as a constitutional thinker apart from his political and racial theories. Um, but as I always say in these situations, you know, if the United States comes apart in the next 10 years and California or Texas secedes, we're going to be paying a lot more attention to his constitutional yeah. theories again. <laughs> yeah, true, true. You know, uh, he's a peculiar kind of ideologue. Don't you think in, in the way that as you look at his career, he is not above adjusting his views. <laughs> right. right. So I was looking at nullification, which really uh, wasn't that a lot of that, I guess, honor is part of it, but it is certainly economics. Right. Yeah. So yeah. In, in 1830, by the time he gets to 1844, I was reading in your book and he has this thought about running for the presidency. Yeah. Um, and he even gets a, 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 the first one of the first political biographies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and his platform sounds like not a protectionist. He sounds like Rand Paul. Yeah, absolutely. You know? he's, he's got free trade, low duties no debt, mm -hmm. separation from banks, strict adherence to the constitution. Yeah. This sounds well, very familiar. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it does sound familiar. I mean, Cal Calhoun is one of the early, uh, one way in which he doesn't change, as you point out, he, he does, he does shift over the course of his career from this early nationalist position to, to the state's rights position that makes him famous, you know, that we all know him for. Um, but one thing that's fairly consistent is that he is he is a free trade advocate. He is a, a he is a disciple of Adam Smith from as as early as I can tell. Although he does he does support 
tariffs early in his career. Um, but he is very consistent in the sense that he he sees them as temporary and and that that the country has to outgrow them. And by the 1830s and 1840s, he is a vocal um, uh, proponent of free trade. In fact, his argument about against tariffs to to northern manufacturers is always that they're thinking too small that they that they could be instead of just protecting the home market and and kind of monopolizing the home market through tariffs they should be thinking about how to co-opt the global market yeah. right and uh and in that sense he's you know when you read him you you see that he is seeing the world that we live in today, quite frankly, right, where some countries yeah. are going to dominate the global economic uh, uh, order of things, and some countries are going to be uh, exploited. And Calhoun wants the United States to be on the right side of that equation, and and he's saying the tariffs are not going to get us there. We can we can be the production capital of the entire world and get our raw goods from wherever we need to, including the American South, if you people will just abolish these tariffs, you know? Um, but just, just a point on his, on his campaign slogan in 1843 and 1844 is the, is the presidential election that yes, that sounds like a lot of right-wing uh, political jargon or campaign speak today. Right. Mm -hmm. But some of his support in that campaign actually came from uh, left wing, what what at the yeah. time counted as left wing. The, the Loco uh, Focos. Yeah, the Loco Focos. I love recovering this group, which it was way back in my high school, maybe, memory. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they they saw the Loco Focos were like the... Uh, 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 these are labor guys, labor radicals. Yeah, but who, who, the, the wall, you know, Occupy Wall Street, that's yeah. who they were, right? <laughs> they were, they were these people who were critics of the alliance between elite banking industries and the government and, and the way that this exploited the working classes through manipulation of financial policy and all these sorts of things. And in 1844, they saw Calhoun as the person who most yeah. who most clearly represented Go the critique of, of that that they um, that they wanted to see in the highest office, which is just a fascinating, you know, it, it's why you can't. It's accurate to make some uh, parallels, obviously, between today and and what Calhoun represented, and line those up in terms of where they line up politically along our political spectrum. But there's also some things that you always have to acknowledge don't quite fit. <laughs> I, I have a few goofy questions. Um, Great. So forgive me and feel free to just brush them away if they're not, <laughs> if they're, they're just totally ridiculous. Um, one is to cue up the goofy questions. One is, you know, I'm interested in, you know, often uh, right wing, uh, movements today will have a few of their like uh their like intellectual powerhouses and then they'll like and i guess left-wing movements do this too but I, I i see it a lot in right-wing movements they have their like 
oh, you just have to read Milton Friedman or you just have to read Hayek and they have all the answers and they've thought it all and you're nowhere close. AOC, if you were had the amount of intellectual thought that Hayek had in his pinky, you wouldn't be able to do this or whatever. It's a very common trope of like these intellectual powerhouses that they stand behind. Right. At the time, was that how kind of the slaveholding uh, faction and classes were like with Calhoun? Was there a lot of citing to Calhoun? Was there a lot of he's already worked it all out? He's figured it out. We got the smarts on our side. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, th that's definitely how. Well, so Calhoun's as a politician, right? One of the one of the constant complaints of a lot of his political opponents was that the guy is just too theoretical, too cerebral, too. You know, he's just, you know, H Henry Clay would make fun of Calhoun for for this on the floor of the Senate frequently. So it, it, his uh, political opponents took advantage of the fact that he was seen as this kind of intellectual powerhouse to kind of make fun of him, but then. On the flip side to that, what what Calhoun's supporters and eventually many of the people in the South uh, would say is if, is some version of exactly what you're talking about, right? Which is if you just read Calhoun's constitutional arguments or you read his arguments about slavery, then you would then you would really understand our position, right? So my one of my favorite examples of this is. Um, that after the Civil War, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, writes a, a book that's essentially a book of constitutional theory um, that's a dialogue between two characters, right? So the, and the, you know, one character is representing the, you know, states' rights position of the South, and one is representing Abraham Lincoln and the Union. And, and Alexander Stevens, um, has his characters go back through and read and debate this uh, speech that Calhoun gave defending uh, the compact theory of the Constitution. That is the idea that the states retained their sovereignty even within the Union and that the Union is not a nation, it's just a compact of sovereign states, right? And of course, in Stevens telling, Calhoun's argument simply demolishes the, the unionist you know, Lincoln character of this. And he calls Calhoun's argument a crusher that has never been answered and never will be. Uh, and, and that I think is, is how Calhoun uh, functioned at, in, in his own context was he was seen as one of the premier intellectual uh, products of the of the south and it, that's actually a little odd because calhoun was a also just a, he was a politician right he was not a, a writer or a theorist his works of theory weren't published till after his death he, he did most of his political thinking and theorizing in his speeches um th there were some exceptions to that He's the only political figure of his age, though, that actually published these sorts of uh, political treatises that he did. Um, and so he does actually kind of stand out in terms of American politics. Um, but he he absolutely functions that way for and for a long time. I mean, people who who 
this is why in the 19, you know, in the 20th century, when Russell Kirk writes The Conservative Mind, the reason he includes Calhoun is because Calhoun is seen as, as the most sophisticated argument for states' rights within the Constitution. I mean, that's one of the reasons, and for minority rights in a majority system. That's why he includes Calhoun. So yeah, absolutely, that's how he functions. And I guess the pairing question, the twin question to that is, was there an abolitionist intellectual powerhouse attempt to go point for point against Calhoun? Um, was there, you know, what was the state of the opposition on the intellectual level? Um, oh, boy, that's a great, that's a great question. Who, who would be the, I mean, I suppose, you know, abolitionism always has a somewhat different project but in one sense one one of calhoun's uh intellectual opponents would have been the the um the legal theorist supreme court justice joseph story who we don't think of that often today but joseph story is one of the people who kind of adapts American legal thinking to the idea that slavery is not a natural state. So after Great Britain abolishes slavery in 1833 throughout its empire, there's this huge argument about, uh, about kind of where slavery fits in legal codes in the Atlantic world and whether other nations had to grant uh, you know, the legal principle of comedy, right? Recognizing somebody else's laws. And uh, Joseph Story in the United States is one of the figures who uh, pioneers this, this interpretation of the Constitution that sees slavery as having to be established by positive law. That is, it's not a natural state. It only exists where it, is, it exists in positive enactments uh, of the law, which uh, is key in kind of converting the constitution into an anti-slavery tool, right? There's this constant uh, argument among uh, abolitionists about whether the slavery is, uh, about whether constitution is pro-slavery or anti-slavery. And so Joseph Story is one of the figures who kind of uh, pushes uh, his weight more towards the anti-slavery uh, constitution interpretation. But certainly, you know, figures like Frederick Douglass and people like that who, uh, who argue about slavery, not necessarily in a constitutional sense, but his moral arguments about slavery, I think, have a similar weight to Calhoun's in the culture. <laughs> but the interest, the really interesting thing is, is the, is the uh, equivalence between Calhoun and Abraham Lincoln that pops up everywhere, even though Lincoln doesn't truly come on the stage until after Calhoun is dead. Uh, I think that in, in their own era, Lincoln's arguments for the union um, and his, his constitutional arguments for the union during the Civil War were seen by many people as the, the main counterpoint to Calhoun's theories and Lincoln's arguments about slavery uh, as well. 
eventually, uh, even to the point that there was this, there's always this rumor that Calhoun was uh, Abraham Lincoln's father, right? There was this like pop conspiracy theory in the mid 19th oh. century that Calhoun, that Calhoun was uh, including, I mean, people did like even research about how this might've happened and things like this. It, <laughs> Yeah, would have made the American story much more dramatic. Oh, oh right. This is <laughs> this is why this is why people were attracted to this particular myth or conspiracy theory is because the drama of the of these two figures that people saw as kind of equivalent figures Explain being so much. Yeah, being somehow <laughs> mysteriously related, actually related, right? Would be just a central irony of American history. I think it was just irresistible for people to think about it. Yeah, you know, I've got a question that uh, has come to my mind during the COVID crisis at this moment where in my native state of Texas, we are beginning to realize that there's, there's something to uh, a federal, a working federal system. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think they're figuring that out. Maybe they're not quite. Um, Pete, Pete and I have a favorite author who writes about this tension, and that is Bill Kaufman. And Bill Kaufman from a, a book called Bye Bye uh, Miss American Empire, which is all about secessionist movements, Alaska, Hawaii, Vermont. There's, there's a, you know, a million flavors. Yeah. Um, and he has a wonderful sentence demonstrating that secession, as he puts it, is as American as the sacrifice bunt. Um, and that it is a Yankee conception, if not immaculate, then at least wholly untainted at birth by the smear of racism. Yeah. And he goes on to point out how its origins really are in Massachusetts. Yeah. Right. Around the election of Jefferson and so on. Yep. Yeah. You know, you, you have to wonder in, in terms of the regionalism that keeps emerging under COVID, California was doing something. New York was doing something. You know, Trump in, in this sort of shadow government he's setting up in Mar-a-Lago. Where is this <laughs> tending? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, there, there, you know, so I'm keeping a running tab of books that are coming out talking about secession and that there, there have been there have been a lot in the last year. Um, Interesting. And, and not just on the right. Um, the, the, the example on the left would be there's a, a book by Richard Kreitner, who's a writer for The Nation, who wrote a book called Break It Up, um, that is a history of secessionist movements. And basically an argument that if, if the left can't accomplish its ends within the current constitutional system, that secession mm -hmm. should be on the table. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we're, we're more familiar with the right-wing versions of that argument. But um, I, I think that, that, you know, at the end of my book, this is one of my arguments for why Calhoun is still incredibly relevant, whether you want him to be or not. I, I think the question of... Um, the question of, you know, is is saying that he's still relevant somehow rehabilitating him, right, is a question that I that I get a lot. And I think I think that's just the wrong question. I'm not out to rehabilitate him. I think it's just objectively true that he's still important. And one of the reasons is that the American Civil War, far from being the last time that secession happens in the modern world, is actually one of the first times and that it's only accelerated over the last 150 years outside the United States. 
to the point that um, it is a it is a contested but not fringe theory at all that uh, among people who think about these things, political scientists, philosophers, there, there, there's a uh, there's a great book on secession as a modern phenomenon that's uh, um, by an array of thinkers, political scientists, historians, philosophers, who and, and some of them would argue that there is a fundamental right to self-determination that if people with a certain identity, whether it's geographic, linguistic, historical, whatever, right, if, if those people vote if they use democracy to say that they want to be separate from some other larger entity, that that has to be given weight because of the, of the premium that we put on democracy. And there's all sorts of conditions to that and things like that. But you saw this, um, you see this, you saw this most recently and, and closest to us in Canada. Well, you saw it most recently in places like Catalonia, which voted to secede from Spain last year, and they're still working out what that means. Um, but in Canada, there was a, you know, Quebec voted in 1995 or 96, I can't ever remember. Uh, Quebec voted to secede, they passed a referendum um, that uh, the Canadian Supreme Court had to rule on. Well, it, it, the referendum narrowly fails or isn't binding. There's a lot of constitutional issues. But the Canadian Supreme Court essentially ruled that if this happens and this referendum passed, that the Canadian government would have to enter into negotiations with Quebec to figure out what the process would look like. Um, and so we tend to think that secession is a kind of one and done thing that we've, we're not going back there and I certainly hope we're not. Um, but I think it would be a little naive given the state of the world and the state of our, our country to think that it couldn't happen again. Um, I, I don't, you know, I used to tell my students that I could not see, and I haven't been teaching that long. So, I mean, 10 years ago, I used to tell my students I have no idea how secession would ever happen today because I don't see the political fault lines and especially the geographic fault lines mm -hmm. along which it would lie. And I have stopped saying that. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Wow. We are a Christian tinged podcast and um, I, you know, I'd be remiss to not ask uh, about how Christianity played into the story. Um, there was a lot of Christian undergirding of the abolitionist movement, but there was a lot of uh, uh, Christian undergirding of uh, arguments kind of laundering Christianity for the sake of slavery. And uh, I'd be interested in how you saw that story and intersection through Calhoun. Yeah, great question. And, and you know, my first book was on religious history, so I was very attuned to this part of the, of the story. Um, Calhoun grows up Presbyterian, Scots-Irish Presbyterian, very, very deeply influenced by that. His father was an elder in the Presbyterian church. His, he, he went to, he was educated by Presbyterian clergymen early in his life. He went to Yale at a time when Yale was uh, basically an evangelical hotbed. And, and Calhoun resisted all of oh. that. <laughs> um, he, 
he he was never disrespectful of religion. He was surrounded by fervently religious people his entire life. It's pretty clear that he begins uh, uh, at Yale and afterwards to um, uh, to gravitate towards Unitarianism, which of course is not irreligious, but it's in the in the 19th century to gravitate towards Unitarianism was a, a was you were certainly consciously stepping outside the bounds of religious orthodoxy as people understood it, Christian orthodoxy. Um, and this becomes an open secret in South Carolina that Calhoun has kind of left the fold, so to speak, to the point that when he dies, uh, the Presbyterian clergyman, James Henley Thornwell, who fully approves Calhoun's politics, uh, warns students at South Carolina College you know that that he's a wor he's a worthy political hero, but don't don't follow him when it comes to religious matters, right? And this this is reflected in Calhoun's arguments about slavery because Calhoun makes what's essentially a utilitarian argument about slavery, right? That it it's the best for the most number most people, black and white, that it works for everybody, and therefore it's right. And um, even people like James Henley Thornwell, who were Chris, who were vigorous pro-slavery, you know, who defended slavery from the Bible, um, and and provided a lot of the ammunition <clears throat> for that. Even people like Thornwell uh, thought that Calhoun's argument um, was a little too extreme because it didn't grant even the metaphysical evil of slavery. In other words, even somebody like Thornwell didn't think that slavery was going to exist in heaven, right? He thought it was part of a fallen world, even though he argued that it's authorized by the Bible and all these sorts of things. And he, he thought that by arguing for it as a positive good, Calhoun went so far as to kind of deny the fallenness of the world and some of these other important religious principles. Um, and that, that, idea that Calhoun's lack of religion or his, his, the way that he distances himself and, and makes these purely rational arguments shows up too in, um, Calhoun has a lot of correspondence with the fam another a famous Catholic in American history, Orestes Brownson. Um, and Brownson, who is an early, uh, Kind of acolyte of Calhoun's. He, he's a huge fan, a fan of Calhoun in the 1830s and 1840s because Brownson is part of the, the Locofoco movement. He's, he, he, so this, this kind of left-wing critique of capitalism, uh, Brownson is part of that and, and is really has a lot of affinities with Calhoun. But by the end of his life, Brownson, after he converts to Catholicism, Brownson says, and I didn't put this in the book, I couldn't, I should have, but Brownson says that, that Calhoun had essentially a pagan view of liberty, hmm. um, that he placed freedom and liberty at this, on this level with kind of the highest, you know, metaphysical good, and that that distorted everything else about his theories. And um, I think that's actually a, a very, very insightful uh, uh, way to think about it. I think that if Calhoun had retained a little bit more of the 
the idea of the fallenness of the world that he could have that he inherited at first from his Presbyterian upbringing, he might not have made these arguments about about slavery as a positive good in the same in the same way, or at least it's hard to imagine how he would. Yeah, I, I was waiting to see if there might be some moment of a demonstration of human compassion in Calhoun, and you have to look, you have to squint pretty hard to find I think, videos, right? I, I think certainly in his arguments, you, yeah, it's hard yeah. to find in his arguments. The only place you find it in his personal life is his relationship with his kids, um, and especially his daughter, Anna. Hmm. And, you know, that's just one of these uh, uh, things that, a, you know, a biographer can kind of draw out is how somebody like Calhoun could be completely, he was seen as completely cerebral and that was very true, coldly rational. Uh, and yet, you know, his letters with his daughter, Anna, are wonderfully warm. He was a doting, doting, overindulgent father, probably, um, in many ways. And I think that just gets at the, at the way that, um, you know, human beings are complex and contradictory creatures. Uh, we haven't escaped that. I'm going to give the last question to Pete. Okay, I, I'll make it weird. Um, <laughs> in that spirit, and, and you've been very indulgent to us of not doing the kind of academic thing of saying it's not my place to answer that. So I, yeah. Appreciate, yeah, right. you, I appreciate you playing ball with these. Um, <laughs> to put on, maybe we could add with some psychologizing of him because it's kind of interesting to look at these kind of world historic uh, uh, figures, I would say kind of a dark figure in American history. Mm -hmm. um, what is driving them? You know, is it, and just to lay out a few examples, like, is it that, is it a Marxist thing where he wants to keep his slaves and it's all his economic interests? Is it a social thing where he wants to please his friends? Is it a, like, Southern patriotism thing where he's coming up with all these arguments for the South? Um, or is it, you know, is it a strange kind of intellectual uh kind of ordering the abstractions in the perfect way and he has come up with his perfect abstract system and it must uh follow from that what uh what do you think's the psychological drive here yeah well one of the things that i think um i think i said you know i, I said somewhere else that one of the ways i don't relate to calhoun is that he has this sense of complete and utter certainty that i don't I just don't relate to that, <laughs> that part of him. Um, but he had it uh, from very early on. Um, he, he even writes about it. He, sa he says to one of his friends, I don't know whether it's a fault or not, but when I grasp something, it's just clear to me what I have to do and what I believe about it. And I have no choice but to follow it, right? And, which is kind of a scary <laughs> thing to admit <laughs> to. Um, I think, I think that the key, the key to understanding Calhoun for, uh, his entire life, the through line is that is, uh, his ambition to be famous. Um, not in a, not in the sense of a celebrity sort of fame that we think of it today, but in the kind of classical sense of, he wanted to, to write his name in the kind of, you know, the Hamilton musical sense of fame and history, right? He wanted his name written in the book of history. 
And ironically, he accomplished that, uh, right? Even, even if it's not uh, the sort of entry he would have chosen. Um, so his sense of ambition is one key to him psychologically. The other, the other key to him, I think, is, uh, you know, the political scientist Corey Robin has this um, great description of the conservative intellectual tradition where he says that, that and it's not, not quite as charitable as I would like, but it's a, it's a great description that he says the conservative intellectual tradition is a meditation on the felt experience of having power, feeling it threatened, and producing an intellectual response that, that, that will protect that power, right? And, um, and I think that is also a key to understanding Calhoun that beginning with the nullification crisis and the sort of threat to his way of life that the federal government represented, and then quickly that morphing into the abolitionist movement and that representing a, a threat to his way of life, um, that constantly what he is doing is working within the American constitutional system, frequently brilliantly, um, to come up with ways to for the South to maintain its power and protect itself. Now, I, I think that there are some deeper psychological and maybe you know the flip side of fear is love of something, and. Uh, Calhoun, I think, is reacting to defend something that he loves, as, as twisted as that can seem to us, right? That slavery was part of his conception of home and family, and it, it, was, it was something that was so deeply ingrained in him in a way that I think we just have a very, I have a very tough time understanding it. But you know, maybe we can all relate to the ways that we're able to deceive ourselves and overlook uh, our own contradictions. And, and Calhoun does that on a, on a massive scale, certainly. Um, but that, that attempt to defend uh, something that he valued, right? Uh, and slavery was inter intertwined with that for him. So that, that psychological response, I think, is really key to understanding him. We are a um, we are a podcast that kind of loves sentiment, loves localism, loves hometowns. But this episode is a great reminder Indeed. of uh, everything in moderation. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that I and, you know, I, I if I could just comment on that, I think because I I love a lot of those things too, right? I am a localist. I am a I believe in being rooted in places and what they can give you. And uh, if there is a warning to people like us and maybe to modern small C conservatives, and I, I would count myself as one of those, right? It's that that can't, that can't give you everything that you need. You still have to make judgments about what is worth defending. And uh, you know that value system might have to come from outside your place sometimes. Amen to that. That's good, that's good, wonderful. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, so much fun. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, marvelous book and wish you all the best. We'll look forward to whatever's coming next. And uh, thank you, Pete, for joining me. Thank you.